Hi, I'm Ken Blanchard. And hey, everybody, it's Chad Gordon, the host of the Blanchard Leader Chat podcast. And Ken, this is one of our best of series. And this was a really popular one. There's so many great nuggets. Marcus Buckingham, what was your big takeaways from your our conversation? Well, he's just an amazing guy. I think he's one of the great new thinkers. Uh, he's been around a while, but man, he's always got things. And this thing, nine lives about work, I mean, uh, Marcus doesn't mince any words, does he, Chad? No. He gives it to you straight. And uh, this is going to be a session that you're going to get a lot out of and is going to challenge your thinking. Absolutely. So many great learnings in this. Uh, again, one of our best of episodes of the Blanchard Leader Chat podcast, and it starts right now. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat podcast. Hi, this is Ken Blanchard. We need a new leadership model in business today one that values both people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. In this podcast, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews experts who help us explore different aspects of leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear, and you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leaders others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I've learned and how I'll be putting it into action. Now enjoy this installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Gordon, and today we are going to be talking about the nine lies about work, a free-thinking leader's guide to the real world, and we're joined, delighted to be joined by one of the co-authors of that book, Marcus Buckingham. Marcus, welcome to the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. We're, we're delighted to have you on, and uh, um, you've got such a, a rich history in this industry, and, and you are the thinking man's thinker in terms of just really digging into the information, the numbers, really getting at the heart of the matter. And this book, I think, is going to turn a lot of people on their heads. Like, this, this is provocative stuff. Well, we're living in a world right now where an awful lot of our core assumptions about people at work are about to be turned into algorithms, Mm. um, which will be informed by machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we're going to, in a sense, take our assumptions, turn them into math. And uh, therefore, now is a really, really good time to examine our core assumptions about people really carefully to make sure that what we are accelerating at great scale across the world is actually true and helps us to be more productive or helps us to be more engaged. So that really was the impetus of the book is before we start doing this at great scale, before every single person at work is is enthralled to all of this um, machine learning and AI that supposedly is gonna help us be more productive, more engaged, help us plan and grow our careers and develop our skills. Before all that happens, let's just stop and have a really careful look at what we currently believe to be so about work and people at work and make sure that they are in fact those assumptions those core beliefs are in fact so yeah so i think as we have our discussions there's some of our listeners are are really going to push back they can't do that in a podcast but they they may disagree with you on on some of these but there was a lot of research that that went into um, each and every one of these as you call them lies nine lies let's dig right into them if that's all right so lie number one 
people care which company they work for. I mean, that's been hammered home to us. Isn't, isn't, aren't we supposed to care about that? Isn't, isn't that's what we aspire for? We work for the organization and we, we endorse them. How, how, how is that a lie? Well, people very clearly care which company they join, which is why the Fortune Best mm. Companies to Work For issue is their most read issue of the year. Um, but it's really just a recruiting manual. It's designed to sort of try to tease people in, lure people in. It's like our culture looks like this, and let's tell you about the um, the focus that we have on our employees and the break rooms that we have and the personal time off to work on your own projects that we have. And it's all great. I mean, it's not bad at all, but it's it's peacock feathers for people is what it is. <laughs> and it draws people in, which is fine. But if then, if um, once you joined a company, if there was such a thing as a company culture, if there was a uniform company culture at say, I don't know, uh, Tesla, then we ought to be able to find two things um, when we interviewed the people who worked at Tesla. One, we ought to be able to find a uniform set of experiences or feelings about what it's like to work there, no matter which group or division or department you worked in. We ought to be able to find that. And whatever that was ought to be measurably different from some other company, like say, I don't know, Patagonia. We ought to be able to see those two things. And we can't. We never can. Hmm. Whenever you go into a company, even supposedly one with a very distinct culture, like say Patagonia or Chick-fil-A or Facebook, like pick your pick your company, what you find is variation. You find huge range in what it's actually like to work there, according to the particular organization or department or division or group that you're in. And so what you find just just numerically, you find that there is a much bigger standard of deviation inside a company than between companies. And along with that, you find that the variation in voluntary turnover, what people leave, a huge range, not company by company, but by team by team by team by team by team. And so you just keep pushing on actually what is the lived experience at a company like and what you find, of course, is that when people leave a company, they're not leaving a company, they're leaving the team. And so although they care which company they join, once you're there, the team that you're on becomes the sun, the moon, and the stars for you. That's mm. what your experience is like at work. It's not theoretical and abstract like culture. It doesn't require you to sort of, quote, unquote, believe in something. It's real. It's just real people, six of them, seven of them, ten of them, whatever. They're there every day. And whether they care about you or whether you set clear expectations for one another or whether you have your, the back of one another, these are real things that you experience as work. So the lie is that people care which company they work for, which leads us to do things like try to build company culture, all of which is a waste of time. The truth is that people care which team they're on. And so anything we do to help us understand how these little micro cultures of team by team by team by team, how do we do that well? Ah, okay, that's a super good use of your time. So lie number two, I think when you think about leadership at the top levels of an organization. It's really about plotting out the plan of attack, where we're going, follow me. You say that the plan isn't as important, or at least lie number two is the best plan wins. What do you mean by that? Well, right around now, September, October, every company goes through its planning stages to put together the plan, have a company retreat maybe with executives to, to devise the plan. And then the plan, often called a strategic plan, is then presented to the board and then it's uh, blessed by the board. And then sometime around January, the plan becomes disseminated down through to the rest of the organization. And we've, we, we've created these really large planning systems and companies are organized around planning systems. And 
Of course, when you really push on it, plans um, are one of those strange uh, phenomena where the better it is, the worse it is. So the more detailed the plan is, the more rigorous the plan is, the more specific the plan is, the more time it takes to put that very filigreed plan together, um, the more likely it is that time has passed on, that the real world has moved on, and whatever the reality is that you now have to use your plan to engage with is super different from the reality when you started putting your plan together. So the more detailed your plan is, the worse it is. The more time you take to put your plan together, the less likely it is that the real world will have stood still. When you actually look at the real world, and frankly, the place where you first see this is in the armed forces, um, Stan McChrystal's work on Team of Teams, which if you haven't read that book, is a great book. Mm. But he was talking about trying to hit the um, terrorist cells, all of whom were super decentralized, highly ephemeral, dynamic teams coming together on the strength of a cell phone. And he was trying to hit them, um, take people out in Iraq in 2003, 2004. And they, because no matter how fast they ran their planning system, where they would run information up the, um, up the um, ladders of control and hierarchy, someone at the top would make a decision about where to deploy sources and resources, and then boom, the orders would flow back down through the hierarchy. No matter how, even if they ran that at light speed, they were always late. They just kept missing. In that case, real people in real houses were not there anymore. Mm. And so, of course, when he pushed on that, as we all do as leaders, you realize the best plan doesn't, planning's good, by the way, planning helps you scope the problem, helps you scope what you're looking at. Plans themselves help you engage really well with the recent past. What you want instead is intelligence. The best intelligence wins. We ought to flip everything around and figure out as leaders at the top of the organization, how do we get frontline people to be as close to real world data or intelligence about the real world as we possibly can, and then let them make the decisions. The best plan doesn't win, the best intelligence wins. You gotta build an intelligence system, hmm. which in simple terms, on one level, is as simple as the best ritual that any leader, any leader could come up with, and when you look at what the best do, is they do a check-in every single week with each person individually, not as a group, individually, super light touch 15 minute check-in asking two questions what are your priorities this week how can i help and when you run the data on that you see the variation in the number of leaders that are just touching base with each person every week the correlations toward productivity engagement and voluntary turnover are really strong which means almost it doesn't really matter how good your check-in is uh just do it frequency when it comes to leading and intelligence frequency trumps quality if you can just touch base with each of your people every week about near-term future and what their priorities are, um, you'll have built the beginnings of an intelligence system. Marcus, I, I love, uh, I'm sure you've gotten this feedback many a times, but I love the way you make the, the seemingly very complex into very simple terms, so I appreciate that. This last one um, really dovetails very nicely into the next lie, which is the mm. best company's cascade goals. and. That lie does not mean that goals are not necessary, and it's very much the, the different, but it's, it's when companies actually set the goals, leaders set the goals, um, it can feel like prison. I, I think that was one of the terms you used in the book. What did you mean by the best companies cascading goals being a lie? Well, most of these lies start off as a really good truth in one small set of circumstances, and then someone tries to blow it up and spread it and scale it, and it turns into a lie applied across all cases. Goals is a good example. Goals work only in one set of conditions if you set them yourself. 
We don't need SMART goals or BHAGs or OKRs or whatever the most recent <laughs> manifestation of MBOs is. Right. Goals work only on one set of conditions. If you set them yourself, if you say, I want to run the marathon, and it comes out of you as a way to manifest something that you hold valuable, then it's super useful. Goals are ways of manifesting in the world what you value. And they're great for that. But of course, what, what, how they've metastatized is, is companies have then tried to say, well, in order to create alignment for the organization, we're going to start off with the CEO having goals. And then one level below the CEO, there'll be mini goals. And then underneath that will be mini, mini goals, mini, 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 mini. And then we'll just We'll actually have software that automatically cascades goals down on you so that sometime in, I don't know, January, your goals will be automatically bucketed and arrive inside of some field in your software as though this will, and this is the word you see everywhere, <laughs> will create alignment yeah. and that we should have cascaded goals because we want alignment. Well, if that was true, if that was really going to work, you would have thought that during the course of a busy year as dynamic things change and situations change and flux, we would forever, as workers, we'd be popping back into our software to check our goals and reassess or recalibrate them to fit with the changing realities that we face. And yet the data on this is unequivocal. Less than 5% of people go back even and look at their goals once, once they put them into a software system. Once. And and for many of us, actually, it turns out we go in right at the end of the year yeah. in order to just put our goals in for the first time so that we can have them be just stretchy enough or just slacky enough to warrant us getting the right rating at the end of the year. Um, goals as a tool for alignment are terrible. I mean, it, just in terms of pure utility, we don't look at them. We, we know that they, when they rain down upon us, they're useless. Instead, what the best leaders seem to do is they realize that alignment, if you want alignment, you've got to figure that the locus of control for alignment is inside the team member. Mm. So we've got to somehow communicate something to the team member that they can feel within them, that they can metabolize. And then from that comes the goals that they set. So the thing that people cascade in really good companies isn't goals. They cascade meaning. The best companies cascade meaning. They're forever. If you think about even just the examples of companies that you can imagine that do this really well, and we pointed out some examples in the book, but they're really good at cascading meaning through stories and heroes through rituals that they have, by the just expressed values that you put on the wall and how the buildings look. Um, the best leaders cascade meaning. And, and then, in a sense, that meaning becomes the aligning force around which everyone coalesces. Ken Blanchard's company, as an example, if there's alignment for Ken, it's because he's done such a beautiful job over the years at, at talking every day about what he deems valuable. Mm. And if you listen to those, you know, those little messages that he would send and, and the, the ways he ritualizes that, if over time you go, you know what, this isn't for me. This is not for me. These values are not mine. Then you leave. And, and so what Ken has done is what all good leaders do is that they consistently and ad infinitum refine and communicate their values and hope that those values are so clear that they are repulsive to some people, that they repel people, and those people leave, and we end up with an organization that shares a similar set of values. That's what the best leaders do. 
Moving on to the next lie, the best people are well-rounded. And I think I think that that does go against what people are kind of grown up to believe. I mean, we take kind of a general education and in college, unless you get very specified early on, you're supposed to take general electives to know a little bit about of everything. Um, what you're saying in yeah. the workforce is is to be well-rounded, it, is it better to be more technically focused and have a very clear area where you are an exemplar employee? Well, this one starts in school where you ask American parents, your child comes home with the following grades, English A, Social Studies A, Biology C, Algebra F. Where should you spend most of your time with your child? And we've asked that question for 25 years, and there isn't a year that goes by when less than 70% of parents go with the F. We all go with the F because the well-rounded child is better. And then in school, of course, we we emphasize that the well-rounded student is better, and then at at work, we just do the same thing. We build long lists of competencies and we measure people against all the competencies and we tell you in your performance appraisal that if you want to excel, you better acquire somehow all of the competencies that we've used to define your job. Why? Because the well-rounded employee is better. What we've missed is the real world. I mean, the whole book was focused on like, put theory aside I mean, we called the reading line of the book was Nine Lies About Work, but the, but the subtitle was A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. So the free-thinking leader puts theory, models, dogma aside and just goes, well, let's just look at the real world as it is. And when you do that and you look at excellence in anything from tennis to nursing to salesmanship to coding, you look at excellence in any job and what you see is idiosyncrasy you see people doing the job really really well differently funnily enough average in any job average turns out to be the same average is well-rounded if you look at any just to take an obvious sort of sporting example take an average golfer and most average golfers sort of look the same you've got to stand with you got to hold the handle and presumably <laughs> stand sideways to the ball and swing back and swing forward and most golfers average golfers kind of look like that when you start getting up to the levels of excellence you start seeing really unique players swinging in really unique ways tiger Woods swing doesn't look anything like phil mickelson's swing doesn't look anything like jim furick's swing rory mcelroy's swing was entirely different everyone's got these weird ways of getting around the course and what they've done is they've maximized some advantage that they've had so you look at excellence anywhere and it's always spiky so the best people aren't well-rounded and you start telling people to try to become well-rounded you will not be helping them to excel excellence is is always spiky somebody's figured out a competitive advantage or a comparative advantage and then leveraged it super intelligently so the next one is is very interesting because i I always firmly believe anybody tells me, oh, I love feedback. I crave feedback. And, and keep in mind, one of Ken Blanchard's favorite things to say is feedback is the breakfast of champions. <laughs> you talk right. you talk on uh, on uh, lie number five, people need feedback. You, you, you know, they, they crave feedback. That's a lie to you. What did your research find? Well, and it's not, it's not really, it, this isn't a belief that it's a lie. If you look very carefully at what happens when we try to help somebody else excel, one of the things you discover unequivocally is that people need other people. You don't excel in isolation. So yes, people need other people. If you want to destroy somebody, ignore them. 
We know that the best way to kill someone actually is to ignore them. Lonely people die more often, have more diseases, more likely to commit suicide. So we, we as humans, we do need other people. But that then begs the question, what do you need from these other people? And at the moment, there seems to be a prevailing belief, and it is a belief, one could almost say a fad, saying that what people really need is constant, ongoing, frequent feedback. And particularly those Gen Yers, those millennials, they really love that feedback. And by feedback, we seem to mean, I'm going to tell you what things you're doing right and wrong and tell you what things you should be doing differently to be better. Hmm. And that's what we mean by feedback. And there are apps upon apps upon apps about to hit your phone that will enable you to get or give feedback on anyone at any time about anything. And so we're running headlong down this, this feedback fetish. And yet, if you look at the data on it, um, when somebody says, come on, let me sit down, let me give you some feedback, the, the brain patterns in your brain look an awful lot like flight or fight. It looks almost exactly the same as when you're being attacked. Um, and so we respond to feedback as threat because we seem to know that you telling me what I'm doing right or wrong presupposes that you're the source of truth about me and you're not. And then second, when you start telling me what I should do differently, that presupposes that learning for me is just basically being injected by advice from you. And then I just, I don't know, it goes into my brain and out supposedly comes behavior. And deep down, we know that's not the way the learning happens. Instead, what, when you see excellence happening, excellence is always a function of, of learning, and learning is insight, what, what, what brain scientists call a, a feeling of knowingness generated from within. So whenever you see someone learn and grow, they aren't taking your advice as though you injected it into their brain. That's not what's happening. What's happening when someone learns is that you're taking or helping them to find patterns within them that already exist, natural recurring patterns, and then you're refining them, adding consciousness to them so that they can do them again or do them with greater effectiveness. That's what all learning is. It's building on patterns that are already within you. Um, brain scientists say that learning is like new synaptic branches um, or rather new synaptic buds mm. on existing branches. It's not new branches. Um, so what that means then is what if, if I was trying to help you get better, what you need from me, you don't need me to tell you what you're doing right and wrong and how to do it differently because that doesn't help you get better. What you need from me is simply me reacting because frankly, that's all I've got. I can tell you my reaction. That's all I've got that's true. So I can tell you my reaction. And then particularly my reaction to what works. I should be, if I really wanted to be a good developer of other people, I would pay really, really close attention to when you did something that worked. And then I wouldn't just pat you on the head and say, good job. I would use good job as the beginning of a sentence, not the end of it. And therefore, when I said good job, I would then go, what were you doing then? Why did you do that? What were you thinking? What ran through your mind? What worked? Why did it? I would interrogate when something really worked. I wouldn't just celebrate it. I would interrogate it. The best leaders are amazing at interrogating little moments of excellence they see at the people on their team. That's not feedback. That's reaction plus interrogation. That's, what, that's how people win. Hmm. And, and we've gone the other way. Now, of course, look, if somebody gets the facts wrong or the steps wrong, 
then it's your job as a team leader to go, that fact was wrong, that step was wrong. I mean, if you're giving the wrong patient the wrong medicine, a nurse supervisor should come in and go, uh, that's the wrong patient. Right. That's the wrong. So steps and facts, if, you, if someone's doing that wrong, you've got to correct them. But let's face it, no job at excellence is simply a function of getting the facts or the steps wrong. Getting facts and steps right takes you from minus six to zero. Getting someone from zero to, to true excellence is an entirely different journey. And feedback of any kind doesn't help in any way on that at all. This next one, this next lie, for me is, is, is the next couple are actually for me very provocative. This one is interesting because it really, it could, it could make people really question what is a, what is a rather large part of the, the leadership and development, training development and, and talent development industry, which is 360 evaluations, 100, 180s. Uh, um, yeah. Your lie says people um, can reliably rate other people and and that every time we send one those uh, one of those forms out to our raters we're basically asking people to give a fair and honest uh, reliable assessment are you saying those don't work and again we're not trying to blow up that industry but is this uh, is that what you're saying when 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 you say the lie people can reliably rate, rate other people well, it's even more insidious than that because it's not just the 360s that you have to call into question it's also the performance ratings that often come with them mm-hmm. Um, if you work for the federal government, if you're one of the three million people who work for the Office of Personnel Management, then by acts of Congress, by law, you cannot be promoted to higher levels or you cannot get raises of certain amounts unless you demonstrate certain levels of proficiency mm. on various competencies. And the levels of proficiency that you attain are all decided by other people rating you on them. And let's face it, who amongst us hasn't got a performance rating at the end of the year that is based upon the fact that another person can be a reliable rater of you? And in fact, many companies have even calibration sessions where a number of different people will come together to give the number that they think you should have. And you get told at the end of the year, you're a four. Um, and, uh, and that's, I mean, almost all of us live inside this world. Uh, the truth of the matter is uh, there's 40 years of really rigorous research, by the way, not mine, just rigorous research that shows that if I were to try to rate you on a quality like strategic thinking, and let's say there were six behavioral questions that, that supposedly measure strategic thinking, um, what the data show is that my pattern of rating you on those six questions seems to have almost nothing to do with you. Not your race, not your gender, not your age, but also not your behavior. The pattern of my rating seems to be much more a function of me, not you. And we know that because when I start rating someone else or a third person, the underlying hypothesis would be that my ratings would change because I'm now looking at a different person. And then on a third different person, my rating pattern should change because it's a different person that I'm looking at. But the pattern doesn't change. My pattern of rating moves with me. My pattern of rating moves with me. This effect has a name, this big effect. It's called the idiosyncratic rater effect. And it basically says, I'm an idiosyncratic rater. <laughs> I might be a very uh, tight little rater where all my ratings cluster in the middle. Or I might use the entire scale because I'm just that sort of person. Or I skew right and I'm generous or I skew left and I'm tough. I don't know, by the way. None of us do. 
we're all way too close to our own stuff to be able to see what kind of idiosyncratic pattern we have, but we've got one. And it's big, this effect. Something north of 60% of the variation in my ratings of you reflect me, not you. That means I have systematic error. Systematically, I am rating you not based upon you, but based upon something to do with me. Now, as any of us know about math, you can't reduce systematic error by adding more data points, which is what a 360 is. Because someone might say, look, you're idiosyncratic, but we add six more people all rating that person. And if you add six pieces of bad data together, then at some point it turns into good data. That's not true. Random error you can remove by adding more data points. Systematic error is like colorblindness. If somebody who's colorblind is asked to rate the redness of a rose, then we all sort of know that if you ask six more colorblind people to rate the rose, that doesn't get you any closer to how red the rose is because they're all colorblind. Mm. Well, when it comes to us rating other people, we're all colorblind, as in we can't actually see the thing that we're supposed to be rating. It's a bit like pain. When your doctor comes, my, my two kids had the same operation last October, a, a deviated septum. And the doctor came in, he'd probably done 3,000 of these darn operations, so he knew it really well. But when he walked in with my son and, and said, hey, Jack, um, scale of one to 10, 10 high, rate your pain. First of all, he didn't say, I will rate your pain. He said, basically, even though the doctor knows a ton about this operation, you're the patient, you know your pain, tell me what it is. When my son said five, the doctor didn't go, no, it's not. He said, it's a five. And then the next day when he went in, asked the same question of my daughter, and she said three. He didn't go, well, that's wrong, because your son said, your, 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 your brother said five. We know in, in the world of health that the only person who's the reliable rate of their own pain is the patient. And the same is true in the world of work. Humans cannot reliably rate other humans on anything. And when we try to build complicated leadership models that rely on 360s where other people are rating you on things like growth orientation or leadership presence or strategic thinking, all of the data is bad. The concepts might not be bad, but all of the data is bad. As in, it's not measuring what it says it's measuring systematically. That is a big problem five years ago. But it's a really big problem as you look forward into the next five years where all of this data, where in the past we might put our 360 results in a drawer, moving forward, all this data is going to be kept on you forever, forever. If you work for um, Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio's company, you're rated on everything all the time and it's kept in what's called a transparency library. And unfortunately for Ray, Ray doesn't realize that all of the data in the library doesn't measure what it says it's measuring. It's mm. systematically wrong. And that's, eesh, yeah, that's a, this one feels a little inside baseball, but it's like, <laughs> oh my word, it's huge. You're, you're blowing up some things. You're, you're, you're going to cause some conversations. And this next one, the, the seventh one, uh, um, the lie you say, people have potential. Uh, just <laughs> off the tongue, that makes some people's blood boil, I would imagine. Well, th- this one is a funny one because, you know, you, you say to yourself, well, of course people have potential. What are you saying, Marcus? You need to have a growth mindset. Um, if you don't have a growth mindset, then you're consigning people to, you know, their current present. Yeah, but let's just play that out. 
the assumption here is that you have a bucket and in the bucket is a substance called potential and that this substance is really cool substance it turbocharges everything you do in every situation you're in any context it gives you greater power to turn into performance or learning and if we think that you've got quite a lot of this green substance in your bucket we give you a name in fact 15% of people in america at work are given this name they're called high potentials mm -hmm. and if you're a high potential you get lots of goodies get more coaching more training more development opportunities more deployments maybe in fun and interesting roles more money um, because you've got this thing called potential and then somebody over here also has a bucket maybe it has a hole in it but either way there's not as much of this green stuff in their bucket and um, they ha there are low po so you have high pose and low pose or even no pose and we create these nine box grids where you got performance and potential on the nine box grid and we assign people a number on this green substance called potential and in so doing we've, we've done something that's not only ineffective because this green substance doesn't exist we, we've never ever found a way to measure some quality about a human that says regardless of context or circumstance or job they are turbocharged that just doesn't exist so on one level we're doing something daft because we're trying to measure something that isn't real but on another level more morally we've just committed apartheid We've just consigned 85% of our people to low potential. How, how awful is that? Surely, as we think about our people at work, every one of them has a chance to grow. Every one of them has some way to get better. By, by creating these designations at scale, high potential, low, it's like we are almost deliberately not seeing 85% of our people. Awful. Well intended, maybe, yeah. maybe, but but awful in terms of an outcome. We've got time for just a couple more, um, close on the end of our time. This one uh, is is going to be interesting for a lot of people. You say it's a lie that work life balance matters most. Well, very quickly on that one, we set up balance as an aspiration, yeah. um, notwithstanding the fact that it's almost impossible to have that aspiration. I mean, who's ever found the person who's found that one little precarious point where everything's balanced? But even if you did, if you found young or old, man or poor, rich, whatever, um, if you if you found balance, what would be going through your mind is you were like, you know, Thursday, nine o'clock in the morning, kids are happy, workers are happy. Um, bank account is fine, job is good, parents, what would go through your mind is, is nobody move. I got it. <laughs> like balance is stasis, stationary. You just want everyone to stop because you found it. In point of fact, when you look at nature, nothing in nature that is healthy is balanced. We used to think balance was good because we looked at the stars and we imagined them hanging there. And what we re didn't realize is how much actually everything's in motion. It's only with the recent sort of discoveries of the last hundred years that we've realized everything is moving. Um, and you, health is actually moving through your world in a way that enables you to draw strength from it so you can keep moving. So balance as an aspiration is such a weird thing to say to people. What we should be saying is, can you find love in work? Not do what you love, that's way too big. But can you find those aspects of life at work that give you strength? Which situations or contexts or people? The Mayo Clinic, in trying to figure out why doctors are all so burned out, why, why do only 73% you know, of doctors today would not advocate 
to be a doctor to their kids. We have higher levels of PTSD in doctors than we do in veterans that are coming back from war zones. Mm. And so everyone's freaking out about how do we stop doctors from burning up? Um, we're going to have a 20,000 doctor shortage by 2025 here in the US. They did this research that basically asked them to identify how many, uh, well, what percentage of time do you spend doing actual activities that you love as a doctor? What they found is if, you're, if you do 20%, just 20% of the activities in your job are things that you love to do. And of course, every doctor is different in terms of what those are. But 20% seems like a threshold. Because if you get 19% or 18%, 17%, with each click down, you see a commensurate linear increase up in burnout risk. Mm. But if you get over 20%, 25 30 40%, you get no commensurate decrease in burnout. So it's almost like you don't need to do 40% of your job activities that you love. It's almost like 20%. It's like a little love, a little conscious love of certain activities in your job. Uh, goes a long way, a long way. We call them in the book, we call them red threads. You don't, to, to have a really good life at work, you don't need a red quilt. You just need to know which particular aspects of your work you really live into and love and invigorate you and weave those into the fabric of your job. By the way, weave those into the fabric of your life. Um, we, all of us, need to learn to figure out which aspects of our life as a parent, as a dad, as a friend, as a community member, as a church member, as a, as a worker, whatever, which are those aspects that, we, that truly invigorate us. You start weaving those into your life, you become a different person. We're talking with Marcus Buckingham, a co-author of the book, A Freethinking Leader's Guide to the Real World, Nine Lies About Work. And, and Marcus, I'm going to leave people hanging on that last lie and just ask you this one last question. What is the one thing that you want the listeners today, the, the readers of your book, what do you want them to take away from your latest work here? Really that the power of a human being, the power of human nature, is that each human's nature is unique. That is the power of human nature. If we go to work and try to eradicate it and see it as a bug to be fixed, which is what we currently do now in virtually every aspect of leader development, performance development, talent development, everything to do with goals and culture is all trying to create sameness when you push on it. That is a crying shame because if you look at teams, teams make homes for weird individuals. That's what teams are for. If we really pushed on teams, we would help build the kind of workplaces in which each individual feels seen and challenged. Not challenged to become someone else, but become a more intelligent version of who you already are. We've got to do that. Appreciate your time. And I know people are going to want to dig a little bit deeper into you, your work. Where would you send them? Well, in partnership with Harvard Business Review, we've set up the a place called the Free Thinking Leader Coalition. So if you go to freethinkingleader.org, which is free site, every one of these lies and truths and the implications of that lie and that truth are played out on freethinkingleader.org. So I wrote this book, not to, to write a book really, but to get almost like a call to arms to go, there has got to be a better way to do this. As, as the person who runs the ADP Research Institute now, we just finished this 19-country study around the world of engagement. And you're looking, although it varies a little country by country, you're looking at about 16, 17% of people fully engaged at work, which is terrible. Yeah. 
uh, we could do so much better. So if you want more information about what to do, how you can put this into your team, your company, uh, freethinkingleader.org. You can find it all there. Marcus, thank you so much for being a part of Leadership Podcast. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us for today's podcast. If you enjoyed this interview and like to learn more and also help us grow the audience, please subscribe to the Leader Chat Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or wherever you're listening. And please share this with your friends. The best way you can help us grow, though, is feedback. As Ken Blanchard says, feedback is the breakfast of champions. So please write us a review if you haven't already. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by the Ken Blanchard Companies. If you'd like to learn more, there's even a lot of free resources to better yourself and your organization. Go to KenBlanchard.com. You'll find all kinds of free tools and materials to help you and others grow. Thanks again to our guests for joining us today. For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his thoughts on what we discussed. Here it is, your final minute with Ken Blanchard. Hey, Chad. Thanks so much for interviewing Marcus Buckingham on his new co-authored book with Ashley Goodall called Nine Lies About Work, A Free-Thinking Leader's Guide to the Real World. I mean, I've been a raving fan of Marcus Buckingham for years, ever since he came out with, you know, his his new, his early books, and, you know, Now Discover Your Strengths and First Break All the Rules and all. He's just a guy that pushes us to think outside the boundaries. And I tell you, this book is all about that. I would recommend that every manager get the book and share the nine uh, lies with your team and, and, and have a meeting once a week for nine weeks about each of the lies and say, you know, what, what does this apply to us and what do we do? For example, um, he thinks that the real value of uh, feedback is not from you giving feedback to your people, but for them thinking about what they're doing, them finding their own strengths. They're giving you feedback about what's going on. He's convinced that people don't leave um, organizations, they leave, leave teams. And so if you would work with your teams on these nine uh, things, it just would be amazing. So um, thanks so much, uh, Marcus. You're the best. And uh, I just so agree with so many of your things. For example, we've given up the whole concept of, of performance review in the traditional sense where managers sit there and give feedback to their people. We think the only f- uh, feedback form that should be filled out is by the person themselves analyzing their and then talking with you about what they think their strengths are, what help they need to be the best. And so it's it's just all about recognizing the uniqueness of human beings and build your management philosophy around that. So good on you, Marcus. This is one of the best. God bless. Thanks, Jed. Thanks, Chad.